Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing. A great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. That's right. It is me, Shane Ryan. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. Everything that man said was true. Look, I don't like him any more than you do, but he's a straight shooter. All right, today is very exciting because for episode number four, we have a nice long interview teed up with Will Leach. Will is a columnist for MLB. That's an acronym, stands for Major League Baseball. Uh, He writes for NYM, New York Magazine. You can see him occasionally at the NYT, New York Times, or the WP, Washington Post, a little bit of everywhere. Uh, Will is a very prolific writer, a hard worker, and kind of a writer's writer for the internet age, but he also happens to be an incredibly good writer, even if he's humble about that aspect. So, great to have him here as our second guest, and always a pleasure to talk with him. Also, famously, Will is the founder of Deadspin.com. So, if you really want to see what he's all about before we start, go right now to Deadspin and check it out. No, don't do that, please. That is a bad joke. Uh, Don't go to Deadspin, because while it was one of our greatest sports sites, and while Will was the founder, famously it came to an end last year under god-awful management when the entire staff walked out. So what you see there now is nothing like the real deal. It's a ghost of its former self, and Will and I are going to talk a lot about that and a number of other topics. So we'll hit play on that interview in a second. But first, indulge me, let me tell you a little bit about the Apocalypse Sports Network. It includes two podcasts each week, a longer single interview like this one, and a shorter variety show that comes out on Tuesdays, which has quicker segments, a little bit of comedy, and some topical stuff. Uh, It also includes five blog posts each week written by me at apocalypsesports.net. They come out every morning. They have some serious writing, uh, some jokes. Uh, If you read my stuff on About Last Night at Grantland, there's a little bit of that. Trips down memory lane during this crazy corona era. Trivia. uh, A little bit of everything. And it's just fun, you guys. Don't you love fun? But the best part, if I may say so is it doesn't cost $6 million. Even I'll admit that might not be a fair price. Nope, it is only $3 per month. So subscribe now at patreon.com slash apocalypse sports and be my best friend. God knows I need one. All right, let's do this. Let's talk with Will Leach. Segment break. Will, thanks very much for joining me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. It's uh, it's becoming more and more. I would have done this anyway if I were traveling through Europe. <laughs> I would take time to talk to you. But I have to say, generally speaking, it is a lot harder to get out of the engagements like this than it used to be. Well, I can't argue. Like, oh no, I'm sorry, I'm traveling through Europe. Like, uh, <laughs> I would do, no matter what, I would say I, I would be there for you. But uh, I don't know if the case. 
I appreciate it. Well, next time you go on a European trip, when this is all over, I'm going to put that to the test. I'm going to specifically ask you to podcast with me while you're in France it's funny, or London. My wife and I, uh, in January, bought tickets. It's our 10-year anniversary this year. We, I have I realized the other day that I have not uh, – I've had a full-time job for like about 20 consecutive years and haven't taken a week off since 2014 oh my when goodness. my son was born. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to take a week off and do it. And so uh, we scheduled our trip to Spain, where my wife used to live, three days after the election. So oh, we are goodness. very curious to see uh, whether or not we make that trip. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, that is fascinating. Uh, yeah, you and I, I also like the idea that your idea of a week off in 2014 was when a child was born. <laughs> like that is yeah. uh, that is in some ways the opposite of uh, like a vacation or downtime. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I mean, I I I, I got <laughs> listen. You know, my viewpoint is always I am very pro labor in these situations, and I, I people should yes. take every opportunity they get a chance to. But uh, I am never happier than when working. So uh, if I'm if I, for me, I usually have like my editors and my bosses. Either begging me or demanding me to take a week a week off, and when they do, I usually just fill up with another thing that I'm doing for that week. So I like to be working as a general. Yeah, and that's one I was actually going to bring this up later, but uh, oh, I'm sorry about that, Will. Apparently, there is a uh, sound effect lingering. I'll edit that out. Uh, <laughs> I have these like this long, um, this huge, you know, this huge garage band thing with like 18 different tracks with my new mixer, and so anyway, um, I'll go back there and say, yeah, so. That was something I was going to bring up later, Will, uh, but I'll bring it up now, which is that one really funny thing to me about you is that your career started with Deadspin, and for a while, your reputation was this, this kind of like brash punk, like whatever, um, but I don't think I know another writer, and I consider myself a workhorse, but I think you are like the ultimate workhorse writer, which completely goes against that image, and it just makes me laugh to think about it. Yeah, that image was pretty wrong at the first place. Uh, I have to say uh, the idea – and we don't have to get into too much sense, but stuff, but I'll talk about whatever you want. But certainly the idea that uh, some uh, – I think it spoke – to the conservatism and uh, buttoned-upness of sports media at the time, that a dorky 29-year-old from central Illinois with a center cut, a center uh, uh, part in his hair <laughs> and a cat uh, somehow was uh, the Johnny Rotten that came in and uh, messed up their sports media. I, I always joke that the, the famous Bissinger show uh, I was on with Bob Buzz Bissinger and Costas, right. I really think that they thought I was going to show up there in like a leather jacket and a, <laughs> and a nose ring and be like, fuck you, I'm your media. <laughs> and uh, and I, you know, I'm just like, no, I'm just a little nerdy guy who likes to, who went to journalism school and is from farm country and just wants to write stories. So See, those uh, guys, I, 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 I was always kind of amazed by that idea. It definitely spoke to how uh, kind of buttoned up everybody was. See, and the, yeah, those guys are so buttoned up. I don't even know if they'd have like the British punk thing. I think probably they were expecting like a greaser uh, with like a, oh, yeah. a cigarette yeah, like pack a, rolled up in a white t-shirt on your sleeve. Yeah. <laughs> like a street tough. Yeah. Like a <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Will, going back to family, you mentioned that, and uh, you just wrote what I thought was a really beautiful, great piece on your weekly newsletter. People can find that at williamfleach.substack.com. Uh, but you were kind of talking how this, as far as we know, this could extend this pandemic into 2021 or, God forbid, 2022. And I just want to read a quick line here that you wrote. Uh, if this lasts into 2022, this current situation will have gone on for more than a third of my youngest son's life. By 2022, I'd worry how much of the before time he'd even remember. Uh, and that's something that really resonated with me. I have a two-year-old daughter. Uh, and so, if yeah, if it went that, it'd be half of her life and really the only half she would remember. 
But in some ways, I'm grateful. My daughter, you know, young enough not to really understand it. I don't have to explain anything. Your kids are a little bit older. So just curious to start, like, how are you handling this whole thing uh, as a parent? And I will probably be taking notes on, on whatever you say. Well, first off, we do have an advantage in that both my wife and I work at a home. She's an interior decorator. Uh, I feel bad for her because she has been – her her uh, company has been uh, – she started her own company, and it's really kind of exploded in the last couple of years. And obviously, like a lot of small businesses, has had to take a hit now, but it's really hard to get people to come fix their houses when you can't go in their house. Yeah, so, right, uh, right. so, But, but you know, we've been working at a home for a while, so we had a certain structure set up for uh you know we had a place where desks could go and we got we you know we got them little laptops to be able to work from the little chromebooks that uh like those cheap those cheap crappy ones that they could work uh, school but we feel very lucky and very privileged to be able to do that but you know we are very organized people kind of across the board uh, i my famously joke that you know i have a list called the shit to get done list that i have a sit-up pad <laughs> that i've been updating pretty much since like 2002, just as uh, an ongoing series of Sinopads where just everything I have to do and I have a calendar, I'm incredibly organized. My rule was all, like, I do not think I am the best writer in the world or frankly in like the top, uh, maybe even the top half, but I will turn stuff in on time and I will be organized. I will make life easier for my editors. And so because of that, I'm hyper organized because I always thought I, I can't outwrite people. I probably can't outreport people, but I can definitely out organize people and I work people. And so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so we are very organized and therefore, so therefore our children are very organized. Now I, I don't, I try not to make them, you know, like, uh, uh automaton production line, uh, little, uh, produ productive, efficient citizens, but certainly, yeah. you know, they understood that there were uh, expectations uh, uh, pretty immediately. You know, they, they our school had we have a really great public school here in Athens, Georgia, where uh, where they've been very good about staying on top of stuff and giving them assignments. But I, of course, have to give them more than that. I've made them do book reports for me once a week. Uh, oh, we wow. have two to five. Um, two to five used to be used to be their after school program at school. Now is we treat it just like that. Like unless it's raining, you cannot be indoors and you cannot watch tv and you cannot play on your computers and that has helpful you know i wrote about this in my newsletter a couple of weeks ago uh if i don't remember the greek film dog tooth that came out a few years ago it's by the guy that did the favorite uh and uh yorgos lanthimos and it's been, it was his first movie and it's basically about this family apparently and i don't know how Grecians raise their children, but apparently <laughs> they are very overprotective of them uh, as, as when they're kids. And so this is kind of a satire of that where there's this family that basically tries to keep their their children in like a compound completely siphoned off from the outside world oh, to funny. the point that every once in a while they'll throw a toy plane onto the grass <laughs> because if they see a plane up in the sky, they'll claim that one of the birds fell or ate it or something. So like they, they, they pretend this is the only place they are. And it is a nice thing about children. If they don't know any better, you could just say, okay, this is what we do now. And the advantage that children have is every day, a children learn a child learns something that completely blows apart their idea of reality whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, right. Like every minute there's something out of nowhere. They're like, my God, it turns out that I can't fly or my knee hurts if I fall <laughs> down or crashing a bike is painful. And their whole worldview explodes every day. So something like this, like 
I've spent 44 years not in a quarantine. So this is very disorienting to me. But for an eight-year-old and a five-year-old, you know, this is a pretty large percentage of their life where they're like, okay, uh, now now apparently we stay inside until the bad, bad virus man goes away. And uh, they kind of <laughs> accept it. Uh, as long as we stay controlled over it. Uh, they, they, and listen, you know, they're, they're both boys. They have become best friends throughout all of this and absolutely inseparable. So uh, I, as someone that never had a brother and as kind of envious of that relationship, I think there's even something positive may have come out of it. Well, that's really great. Yeah. And uh, by the way, with this organizational stuff, your punk image is completely real. Whatever. What I, it, there was no punk image. There was never <laughs> a punk image. I am the nerdiest. This was always very funny. Back in the day, Again, you know, I went to Mattoon High School in Mattoon, Illinois, and it was right, definitely right. very funny. The idea of my classmates and my friends from, from college or people that knew me, they're like, wait, are they saying that you are somehow rebellious? rebellious or somehow like trying to trying to explode like listen to me you know i i obviously i took advantage of a to the fun of deadspin for me was the freedom of it you know i had worked for a lot of publications that i like i was not able to do the work that i was good at and not be able to right. show off kind yeah. of the things i was able to do so i took advantage of that with deadspin and because no one in sports was ever doing that it made me look like i was somehow rebellious but the fact is is uh I, you know i was doing the same thing I kind of, if to me, I wasn't sure Deadstone was going to work. I was just hoping I would write enough that maybe New York Magazine would assign me a freelance piece, or maybe I could get in the Daily News <laughs> or something. So uh, the idea, the idea that uh, I was out to, I, I think the later incarnations of Deadspin were probably I, certainly Deadspin. I think was uh, in some way kind of, I would say revolutionary, but certainly new uh, in a lot of ways. But I think that like blow up the system thing. Uh, probably came more in the generations uh, after me, and I say that positively. I love that they did it. I think that's great. And I, and I, but I do think that uh, it's led uh, to an idea that I'm something other than the nerdy Midwestern kid that I am. I like that. Yeah, I, I've had a similar thing in a smaller uh, way with golf, uh, because even within the context of sports, which, as you said, is like a little more conservative. So what you were doing with Deadspin looks you know, crazier than it would have maybe in, in any other field. Golf is that to like the nth degree. So you know, like I, I could write stuff that Deadspin would like laugh at and would never publish because it was too tame. And in golf, you would look like you said, like Johnny Rotten or something. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I want to hit on that idea that you talked about of, of being super organized because I'm like that to an extent as well. And I have found it helpful in this quarantine. And I kind of thought things would go differently as in that ur what I identify as that urge for control to want to sort of manage uh, your environments and everything like that in a way that not only lets you do what you're good at, but also gives you a sense that you're like you're in control of your own destiny. My worry with my own brain was like, this is going to unsettle everything. I'm just going to feel constant anxiety because clearly what it's proving is that we are not in control of what's going on. Like that is the ultimate message of this. And yet somehow uh, I, I am thankful for those organizational skills. Um, Transitioning from family to writing with all this different stuff you do, New York Magazine, MLB, uh, you know, the film criticism, everything. Have you found that uh, you're kind of like, you know, clicking ahead on all gears and that the organizational stuff has, has kept you sort of steady in a weird time? Yeah, it certainly kept me moving forward because uh, if I paused for a moment, I might be like, 
the things that I write about are literally the things that are not happening in mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. <laughs> like the only, the, all that's missing is a third leg. Like I write about movies and I write about sports, and uh, all that's missing is that third leg of like being a restaurant critic and like everything <laughs> in the world that I, that I good about, I was good at would be gone. So, uh, but you know, for me, you know, I I have an editor at MLB, I have an editor in New York Magazine, I have an editor in New York Times. Like I have a different editor that I work with at all these places. And uh, my general viewpoint on all of this was uh, I'm just going to keep moving and acting like uh, keep moving forward until you tell me to stop. Um, and yeah. that has kind of always been my philosophy kind of across the board and not just in in, in this particular regard, regard. But, you know, editors are incredibly busy people. And what they want is to not have to worry about you. And That's in right. fact, if right. you can take care of stuff for them that they don't have to, if you can like suggest story ideas, because to me, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, like, I guess I don't think of myself as a freelancer because I have kind of these ongoing relationships with a lot of editors. So I guess technically, at least I guess tax wise, I would be classified as a, as a, as a freelancer, a lot of these places, but I have longstanding relationships with all these people to the point that like, they know what I'm good at. They know what I can execute, and I know what they want, and so therefore uh, we're able to kind of merge those things and put them together. I was not going to let a silly little thing like there being no sports or movies uh, (laughs) stop me. From uh, from from doing that. So uh, generally speaking, uh, I've just kind of moved forward, and uh, I keep you know we're doing a series for MLB where I'm looking back at a different year throughout baseball history and kind of like writing, kind of taking inspiration from the dead spin. Uh, uh, so let's remember some guys thing that David Roth did so well uh, to do like uh, look at another guy throughout baseball history and and finding some lists. And I did like a fun retort reported story about Vern Rapp and yes, Carly Skripsky and Pete Rose. I just like finding little things to make sure I'm keeping myself useful uh, yeah, over yeah. there. Uh, you know, I said my dad's an electrician, my mom is a nurse. Uh, there was never an idea where you sat around being like, hmm, what? They never thought like, hmm, I'm not feeling the inspiration to <laughs> yeah, fix right. electricity right. or to save this life today. Like I, you just sit around, you do it, and you, the next day you do it again. And so far, knock on wood, uh, I've been. I, it would be helpful if sports would come back. That would certainly make it easier. Uh, but uh, on the whole, I try to uh, make so much stuff and make so much stuff of it as good and as fast as I can that I hopefully nobody has time to realize that uh, – um, uh, there's no sports. <laughs> yeah, really. And, you know, your stuff for MLB reminds me a lot of what I'm writing for Golf Digest, where you are you can tell looking at the list of recent things, like ranking every rookie of the year from the 2000s or drafting the MVPs and all the stuff you've written. It's a lot like what I'm doing, where you have to get really creative. And it's really it's actually kind of fun. But I have found myself like torn between those two. Uh, warring instincts of like, oh, this is fun, and looking back at this is good, or or doing a simulation of the Masters, or you know whatever it is, and then sort of also feeling empty, <laughs> like <laughs> like when I finished doing it, it's like this was good, and I think people are gonna like it, but also yeah, God, please bring sports back, like like how long can this continue? How creative can we get? Are you kind of feeling that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I've always been kind of skeptical of nostalgia as even just kind of a concept. Basically, nostalgia is often steeped in this idea that things were better than they are now. Things used to be better than they are now, particularly in sports. And I don't think that's true at all. (laughs) I think that, uh, you know, there's a great uh, idea that every sports fan is all kind of stuck at like, Eight, between the ages of eight and 13, because that's when <laughs> yes, they generally right. fell that's in love right. with sports. And so they think sports was best then, even though it almost certainly was not uh, best then. And so because I've always been wary of looking back, 
particularly for a sport like baseball, which I think is often constrained by its past. And this, uh, you know, I, baseball has always lost its soul. It's losing its soul every like six months. So like to have, so I've always been suspicious of it, but right now, I mean, it's kind of amazing that I sat down the other day and watched uh, Game Seven of the nineteen ninety one NLCS, the one the the, the Braves and the Pirates one. Yeah, the uh, Francisco the Cabrera uh, yeah, the game. game. Yeah, right. And like I just watched that, and I know what happens, but like I loved every single minute of that. And, <laughs> yeah. And I and now to go back and like to me, I'm not really being nostalgic for. Excuse me, I'm not being nostalgic for 1991. I'm being nostalgic for when there was baseball. <laughs> and I think that does change the perspective about it a little bit. I can, when baseball gets back going, however, I will be eager not to write about old games, not because I don't think those games value, and I certainly have a almost a better appreciation for them now. But I like, like, I don't like looking back and getting wistful about everything. I feel like that's, that is exactly the kind of mindset uh, not to get political about it, but like the idea that like things were somehow better when you were young and they're terrible now. That's what like old. Let's let like cranky old people that storm that storm the the state capital because they can't get their, their <laughs> yes, mulch yes. Uh, are kind of doing. So uh, and I and for the record, I'm, just to be clear on that, I have like a I, I have a lot of empathy for people. This is a hard time for everyone. A lot of people get, need to get back to work, and I have friends of mine. I have close friends who have. Been Financially devastated by this and need to get back to work. No one's, no one is saying no. Lockdowns are fun. Let's have more of. Yeah, we we want, yeah, we want this to continue forever. And like nobody feels that way, and <laughs> so it's just, and so the idea that like somehow the uh, the notion of I don't know maybe it's too early. Maybe this because I live in Georgia and I'm feeling this particularly acutely right now. Uh, but the idea that uh, someone saying I don't know maybe it's a little bit too early to open stuff up is somehow you want my family to. Stay Starve? I don't. I also want to get out of my house too. Uh, so yeah, I think it's so not to go down that road, but I, I do think that there's a lot of value uh, in in enjoying the past while we can, but uh, recognizing that uh, what was going on now and really what's going on in the future is probably going to be better. Yeah, I had uh, I had a moment the other day, and I've always thought this about myself and other people that nostalgia, while it's very powerful, and I've felt it, it is also just littered with false memory. And I've had it before where I've remembered something the wrong way, and I've had other people tell me stories, and I look them up like, you know, wait a second, that didn't, <laughs> the detail was completely off. Uh, I had a moment the other day; it was insanely embarrassing. I was watching; I was about to start watching the 2003 uh, ALCS Game Seven. That was when the Yankees beat the Red Sox, Aaron Boone's walk-off home run. And I, I was in this slack with a couple friends, and I'm like, I can't wait to watch Grady Little pull Pedro Martinez too early. And I was like, I was like, you know, that was the famous thing. He pulled Pedro Martinez out of the game too early. And I'm a Yankees fan, and I watched it. And of course, it, like that, that wasn't the case. Of course, he left him in way too long, uh, and the Yankees managed to come back in the eighth inning. And I just thought that was so revealing in a way of like, I, I tend to think I'm a pretty like smart guy. I got a decent memory, but I was like, I completely fucking bungled that. Like I, I absolutely remembered it the wrong way. And God knows how long I have probably a decade. If you had asked me, I would have said the same thing. I mean, I can't remember, particularly now, I can't remember uh, anything from like four months ago. I mean, <laughs> it's funny, my uh, my my wife's mother, 
uh, we finally just saw her today. We have not seen her since all this started. She quarantined for about a month, and then we uh, we obviously did the same thing. So we opened up the circle now. We felt comfortable to kind of let her in. So she's here, and so I'm finally talking to her. And it's so funny. We're talking about the stuff that we last talked about before all this happened, and it feels like something that happened in a black and white movie somewhere, like just something that happened years and years and <laughs> yeah. years ago. So I, I get it. I, I get the idea. But, you know, yeah, I think that uh, – uh, I I can't wait for sports to come back. Like, I cannot oh, completely. wait. Yeah. But I also think that we have to remember that our a lot of our critical faculties and our analytical faculties are a little out of whack right now. Uh, I would I would submit the Last Dance as Exhibit A in that. In that, I was that just going to bring that up. Yes. Yeah. Like it's really fun, right? Like I love every minute of it, mm -hmm. and it's so enjoyable. And I lived in Illinois when all that was going on. So I, if you see any picture of me in college, I'm almost certainly have like long Kurt Cobain hair in my eyes and I'm wearing a Dennis Rodman jersey. So yeah. like, you know, that, that I, I get it. That was that was definitely my time. But the idea that uh that, that if we took a step back from it, the idea that's being compared to OJ made in America, like yes, they are both long. That part is true. But uh, otherwise, you know, it, it is it, it's basically history is told by Michael Jordan and, and with all sorts of uh, interesting plot lines that are dropped. Uh, it really is a hagiography of Jordan, which is great because I love Michael Jordan. But as a character leading a documentary, basically a guy who's just constantly raging at his demons uh, and because <laughs> yep. he must destroy everyone all the time is not always the most exciting protagonist uh, for a documentary and I, I found myself ultimately kind of exhausted by him to be honest by the end uh, maybe it didn't make me appreciate his accomplishments any less but uh, I also think that in any other context if we weren't watching this in quarantine with no sports there'd be a lot more criticism and skepticism of yeah, and it was funny when coming on this podcast. I was like, I have to talk with Will about the Last Dance, and I'll force it in. It won't be that hard because you know he he reviews movies, like he's a movie guy. And then of course I looked, and you had written about it. It seemed like when you wrote for New York Mag, maybe you hadn't seen it yet, or maybe only the first episode. But one thing you wrote in there, um, the question is whether the Last Dance signals a change for the thirty for thirty format or a larger change for ESPN itself. And then you probably saw Ken Burns came out today in the Wall Street Journal basically saying, this is not journalism. <laughs> this is not good. He doesn't like it. Uh, but I've had the same experience with you. I, I wrote something that was vaguely critical of it after the first two episodes. But I'm also enjoying it just for the Michael Jordan story while sort of harboring these same problems. So maybe you've answered this already. But yeah, I mean, are, are you kind of like entertaining? Yes. Quality? No. Is that sort of where you fall on it? Yeah, I wrote about it for the Washington Post on Monday as well, and a lot of okay. it was about that idea. It's, it, I mean, listen, I watched it with my eight-year-old, and now when we're shooting baskets uh, in Nerf baskets in his room, well, again, one of those really nice, fun things I've been able to do now that I'm with my family all the time. We just have all these new family traditions. We play a little basketball game at the end of every night, and we like, you know, there's a lot of like new things that I was always too busy to do before this, and yeah. now we've got time to do it, so that's great. But he started wagging his tongue every single time he goes up <laughs> for a shot now. So like, obviously. Obviously, it's fun to see you know, my kids reacting to Michael Jordan the way that I reacted to Michael Jordan. Like I was eight years old when Jordan got drafted uh, by the Bulls. So like, that's exciting. It's kind of amazing, really, when you think that like that's exactly the time that's happening. But as a actual, never minding uh, an actual document of the time, which some of it does a good job of, though, I don't think it actually uncovers a lot of new things. I also think a lot of the footage that was really hyped heading into this, a lot of the behind yeah. the scenes footage is 
basically a different angle of Jordan answering questions in a press herd. Exactly. <laughs> and, yes. And, yes. <laughs> and uh, or maybe Jordan, like, look, here's Jordan and the security staff saying how great Michael Jordan is. Like, and, <laughs> yep. and occasionally, oh, okay, fine. We get one moment where poor Scott Burrell like, gets berated. Yeah. For no reason. So, but otherwise, it doesn't feel like we actually have any more enlightenment uh, about Michael Jordan, or we've learned a lot about him. Uh, I wonder if this is, you know, to me, one of the advantages that OJ made in America had, and this is what I wrote about in the Washington Post piece, OJ is not a part of it. Like, he was in jail. And uh, and I That's feel right. like it, right. it actually helps it a lot. Like, imagine if after every big moment in OJ made in America, they cut to OJ, and he's like, well, Give, hey. Giving context, and yeah. And, yeah. And it's just like, no, we don't need that. It's actually, you know, and this comes down, frankly, to a fundamental philosophy I have about a lot of sports journalism. Then I think this is was, frankly, one of the founding principles of Deadspin, which is – Sometimes you actually can get a better idea of what's going on the farther you are. And mm -hmm. I do feel like a lot of uh, we get really obsessed with access and we get really obsessed with exclusives and we get really obsessed with all those things. But I don't know if it gets any closer to the, A, the truth, or B, the experience that sports fans actually have while watching this stuff. And uh, I know that uh, uh, Jordan is such an alpha male dude that I guarantee you there's all sorts of captains of industries and masters of the universe that are being like, be an asshole to everybody. And that's how you succeed. Oh, completely. But like to me, you know, I feel like this is a, a good. I feel like whether Jordan, and, I'm sure Jordan did not intend this, but this has actually made me respect LeBron James a little bit. To be entirely honest, uh, not just in a matter <laughs> of uh, as, as a as a teammate and someone to, uh, that that uh, uh, I think is facilitates for his for his teammates more, but also as a person, as someone that's grown. Like you know, I remember when John Amici. Uh, uh, announced that he was gay, uh, and it was, I was right after I left Deadspin. And someone asked LeBron James about it, and he said, I'd really have a hard time if someone was gay in my locker room. Right, Can you imagine right. LeBron James saying that now? No, never. Yeah, never. Yeah. yeah. Devolved over that time. Uh, to me, uh, I know they had this, this one hasn't aired yet, but episode five of The Last Dance has a lot of Kobe, has a lot of Kobe Bryant. And, oh, and okay. obviously, it's haunting to see Kobe because he's interviewed fairly recently, but obviously before he died. But what's interesting is to hear Kobe talk about Michael Jordan is in a way that is impossible to imagine Michael Jordan talking about anyone other than Michael Jordan. Like Kobe Bryant has a perspective and he talks about how much he meant to him. And it's clear uh, that after Kobe Bryant once he let go of the I need to be Jordan, or, I need to be the world dominator, something Jordan clearly has not let, let go of. Never. Right. Became a more interesting person and a more worldly person. And I think was open to more things uh, in his life. And I think became a better person and, and a better public figure because of it. And so uh, that's something that clearly Michael Jordan is not capable of doing. And I felt it was an extra poignancy being reminded of kind of what we lost with Kobe. Yeah, I, I had the same thought of if you're looking to see Jordan as a three dimensional person this is not it it keeps that one-dimensional thing of like this is the most competitive focused relentless bitter <laughs> uh, grudge nursing person that's ever lived and the parts the only parts that I really thought kind of like exceeded the format in a way and were good for reasons that go beyond the fact that Jordan's story is just good are the ones where it goes back to his childhood a little bit and maybe explains why he's one-dimensional. Uh, now, whether it's actually true that he's one-dimensional, who knows? But I like the parts where it talked about like how if he beat his brother in one-on-one, -on -one, his brother would fight him, like physically fight him, or how his dad uh, you know, basically would make fun of him for not knowing a, 
a, a wrench from a screwdriver or whatever, <laughs> stuff like that. Where it's like, okay, maybe that like started to breed the resentment. But then you dig deeper a layer on that, and you're like, yeah, but it happens to everybody. <laughs> and not, not everybody becomes Michael Jordan. So even that doesn't provide the answers I want. But going back to a thing you said earlier is uh, about how the farther you are away, maybe the better story you tell. Completely by accident, before I knew this was happening, I reread Playing for Keeps, uh, David Halberstam's book about Michael Jordan. And it's so good, and I'm sure you've read it. Uh, and one thing uh, that's crazy about it is that, not by his own choice, but just by virtue of Jordan's people and everything, he did not get an interview with Michael Jordan. And yet, it's arguably the most complete version of Jordan that anybody will ever create, uh, certainly more so than this documentary. And it almost like proves your point by accident that, yeah, access is not the be-all and end-all, and in fact can work against you in some cases. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any question, and particularly this. I mean, listen, I don't think uh, Jason here, here who did the uh, documentary, and he did the, uh, you know, he's, he's an old thirty for thirty guy. Of course, this is, as I said, not a thirty for thirty, but this is. He was a good, he was a, a good thirty for thirty guy. He made the eighty-five Bears one, which is really good. But it is clear, even when you see interviews with him, where his his uh, he really kind of can't believe the access he got to Jordan. And that feels to be like the point, right? And to me, Jordan should be the guy you check in on with this stuff. And like, and listen, it's not just the filmmakers. Like, there's this great moment in the documentary where Jordan says something, and there's video, and, and so the filmmakers have the video of it, and they take their phone and to show what Jordan said yep. to Scottie Pippen, <laughs> Phil Jackson, and Dennis yes. Rodman. You know, three NBA Hall of Famers and legends, and I would qu argue, I would think pretty convincingly, much more interesting human beings and characters than Michael Jordan. And that was Rodman's Vegas trip, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, but it's amazing. But it was just something that Jordan says about. It. They, they can't wait to hear what Jordan has said about something. That's right. And yeah. to watch how eager they are to see it is a reminder of like that's interesting that to me is more interesting than jordan saying screw isaiah thomas i stopped on that or screw or, or there's a LeBradford smith coming moment coming later and uh, just like okay. jordan's <laughs> weird megalom megalomania that to me is a lot less interesting than the force of his personality being such that Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, and Phil Jackson, just fascinating American characters who are incredible players and incredible icons and mean so much to so many people and just are, are captains of their industry in every possible way, all being like, oh, what Michael say? Oh, what Michael say? Oh, what Michael say? So, like, clearly, I don't blame the filmmakers for that, but I do think it's ultimately, there's a ceiling on him as a, as a, as a lead character of a documentary. Like yeah, definitely. Well, that, that's a, and that's, uh, yeah, that's a great take and perspective on that. And it is still a funny thing of, I'm just going to keep enjoying it. I think <laughs> with all these reservations, I, I can't help it. It's just such an epic character. It's just one of those things that you can't get away from, but can I say, Billy, this is also the first time in my life I've ever watched the censored version of anything because I watch it with my kids and I've never done that. I used to oh. always mock like when in utero came out and like, like it was waste me rather than rape me on the name of the song. And, and they, and they like made the, the art on it. Why like, look at those stupid people. Why would they want that? Don't you want the real unfiltered? And now I'm a dad and I'm like, Hey, you want to watch this? We'll bleep out Michael Jordan's <laughs> casual. Use of so here, here's an interesting thing about that. Will, and it's a complete sidetrack, but my, my daughter, uh, who, like I said, is two and a half now. She went to timeout the other day. This was with the nanny and she sat down in timeout in the corner and she said, this is bullshit. And it was very funny to me. It very clearly came from me. I, I'm someone who I try, I'm trying to cut back, but I, I tend to like swear and let it go. Uh, my wife is sort of similar, not as much as me, but like, you know, she grew up with a, a dad who swore a lot. 
I don't know. Part of me is like, maybe I should just, maybe it's not that big a deal. So, but it sounds like you don't want your kids like to hear that or, or to see it. And I'm, I'm sort of on the fence of like, should I even worry about that anymore? But I, I'm curious for your take on that. Well, they certainly, uh, I drive around Georgia drivers, so they hear me say it all the time. Okay, okay, good, good. <laughs> so uh, they just know it's bad to say. Again, uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand why we're supposed to live in a world where the rules are supposed to be the same for children as they are for their parents. The rules are different. True, I can true, say it true. and you can't. Yes. And that's the rule. And if you don't <laughs> like that rule, go get a job and live in a different house. Uh, and I have to be all like 50s dad about it. But, uh, you know, I do make the rules here. My wife makes the rules and I make the rules and you're the kids. And uh, if you don't like them, um, tough shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I definitely don't want my kids to swear. Yeah. I mean, I'm just wondering <laughs> if I have to censor myself or, like you said, just subject them to the double standard and, and tough shit. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Well, well, I was, uh, to switch gears a little bit, I was looking back at our old emails to see when the last time we did a podcast was, and one side note on that, we did one in 2012, we did one in 2015, and now here we are in 2020. I feel like it could almost be like the seven up documentaries where they track those kids. <laughs> yeah, the Michael Afton ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we keep it going, maybe someday historians will be able to track like the uh, fall of the American empire just through our podcast. <laughs> um, but no, I saw one in 2013, an email I sent you saying, sorry, I, you know, I hope you haven't had too tough a day and i was like i opened it i was like what's this and that was when sports on earth uh went under and that was you know a project you did that was really great um like a lot of the stuff you've done uh and it made me think of deadspin and it was one of those like gosh uh, the more things change or the you know things don't change as much as we think they do um and i did want to ask you a little bit about deadspin obviously it was huge news when it went under and now it's in a completely different and horrible incarnation you had sort of um you it doesn't still... exist now, by the way. Yeah, like yeah, someone, does... I think they had given the good. URL away to like uh, content farmers somewhere, but no, it doesn't exist now. <laughs> good, good, yeah. And you know, you you were not writing on a consistent basis for the site, but you were obviously very close with everybody who is there still. And uh, and it was your child, and so who better to ask about this? I mean, a lot of it has been rehashed, a lot of it has been said already, but just kind of take us through, like, what were your thoughts when all of this stuff went down? Had you seen it coming? Was it a big surprise? Uh, well, you know, it's, I don't want to overstate, you know, uh, certainly I was, uh, I knew a lot of people involved with the site. I knew Megan Greenwell uh, real well. I had known her for a while, but we were never really close. We just got along perfectly fine. Uh, but then when she got hired to be the editor, we got together and we discussed, you know, because of the rare group of people that have done that. But, you know, to me, the staff in many ways, I think uh, a lot of the staff, particularly the younger staff, I some of those people I'd never met. You know, I certainly admired their work and I think they were right, very much right. in the spirit of it. But, you know, I don't want to overstate my uh, closeness to this. I certainly don't think they would want me to because, <laughs> you know, I think that like, I got made fun of a, a bit there myself. But, uh, you know, I think that the fun what they were doing uh the whole point of deadspin really from the beginning is to call out bullshit right like and we've all had different we've all had different uh viewpoints on and different ways of going about it and some people might like this style some people might like this style whatever your thoughts about it but that's been the central through line all the way through through all the editors from me to aj to tommy craigs to marchman to uh to megan to uh ultimately dave mckenna the last actual editor-in-chief of deadspin right, uh, which i right. kind of love to do that in the last day and uh, to me, the uh, they went out the way Deadspin was. They they were true to the spirit of what Deadspin was, and uh, uh, I certainly I knew I knew they were going to have trouble with that management group. You, you uh, did, yeah, clearly. Uh, and what's frustrating is, you know, they. Uh, 
so much of this has nothing to do with Deadspin, right? Like, like think about the history of all this. Deadspin is involved with Gawker, and Gawker was thriving. <laughs> like, Gawker was doing great. And uh, then the then the people say the Hulk Hogan thing. It's not the Hulk Hogan thing. It's Peter Thiel. Like, it's like we yes, history right. has said that, like, oh, the Hulk Hogan thing. Hulk Hogan was the the puppet that Peter Thiel did all of this through. And Peter Thiel still gets to walk around in polite society, and it's bullshit because he is the reason that that happened. Um, and so, so they, so Deadspin, because Deadspin had nothing to do with that, they uh, they kind of felt like everyone else involved with Docker kind of got the ramifications of it. So they get sold to uh, Univision, and and then they get sold, and then they, they that company has its own problems, and so then they like Deadspin kept being. Deadspin was always making money. I think that was the most frustrating thing about this. Deadspin as a business was always successful. It just kept getting shuffled off to businesses that were not successful. And uh, right, that is very right. frustrating. And so once it landed to the idiots and the ghouls that are that were running it uh, uh, when everybody quit, it was obvious not only that they were going to clash with that management team, but also that management team had – no idea what a not just what Deadspin was, but really what any of this is. And uh, I always find that pretty amazing. I never understood why they would have this site in the first place. In fact, when all this stuff started happening, I actually I wrote about this a while back. Got together with some people who tried to buy it back and tried to like just just give it away from them. And even after it was even after it was obvious really? that, that wow. they had put it into the ground, and they just said it's not for sale. It's not for sale because these are private equity dicks, right? They're they, they will yeah. they will sooner lose millions of dollars than they admit a mistake. And so, uh, yeah, it was clear that was going to happen. I was hopeful they could figure something out. The minute they fired Barry, that was when you knew. Like you knew there was they were going to. And the fact that that management team did not realize that when you fired Barry, everyone was going to quit in like 24 hours speaks to how clueless they were about I don't even know a lot of the staff, and I knew they were all going to quit in 24 hours. All you had to do was read the site to know that they were going to uh, quit in 24 hours. So yeah, I, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Uh, but the site, you know, it's it's. Just, I appreciate that. Uh, uh, I've always been honored that uh, you had to respect what they were doing. You had to respect making the stand. There was nothing more of a dead spin stand to say, you know what. Are the job of this site is to call out bullshit, or, bu- bullshit, and this is bullshit. So we're not yeah. going to talk anymore. And yeah. uh, that was a risk. A lot. I mean, uh, uh, most of the people that laid off Desmond are not employed right now. They are still uh, they're freelancing and they're doing things here or there. But you know, they did that into a very tough environment before the coronavirus. Hit. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, something yeah. I've always kind of respected. But uh, uh, I listen for what it's worth. I I made the joke earlier about the content farm. Um, I don't have personal animosity for uh, for the people that are on the pretend cosplay site now. Um, <laughs> they, uh, they have, it's a tough environment for everybody. Uh, more power to you if you can suck some money away from these ghouls. Uh, feel free, uh, but I don't think you could expect anyone to read it. <laughs> and, I uh, uh, yeah, best to put it. 
Yeah, you know, and it's funny because I, I was thinking about this and of the sites that I would actually go to when I just talk about the homepage. So I'm not talking about, okay, here, you know, we'll put a link up on Twitter or here's something I found on Facebook or whatever. Stuff that I would go to just sight unseen because I knew it would be good. Um, ESPN was one just because it's the, the home for sports. So I would go to ESPN.com and I would go to Deadspin. And I think those are the only two, not counting, you know, like Google and Reddit and stuff like that. Um, and so I've accidentally gone back a bunch, and it's completely sad every time. Every time by force of habit, I just type in deadspin.com to see that it's nowhere near it. But the funny thing, it's so annoying the way it is now, Will. It's almost more annoying than if they had turned into like Trump shills or something, because it has these like faint echoes almost of what Deadspin might be. Like there was a headline the other day that I picked out. Um, it was Patriots draft pick Justin Rohrwasser's. Ignorance about three percenters isn't believable. And I didn't read the article, but just the sort of uh, old schooly newspapery thing where they have to tell you who Justin Rohrwasser is. And they go into this thing and it's like, yeah, of course, like people who worked at Deadspin before when it was what it was would have reached the same conclusion. But the headline would have been Justin Rohrwasser is full of shit, you know, like it. And so they're just trying to do, like, it cosplay is the perfect word. They're trying to do this play acting of, like, oh, yeah, we're still tough. Like, nothing's really changed. We're just more respectful now. But, like, in the when you click on it, when you get into the guts of it, it's nowhere near the same. And I find it infuriating that they're trying to pretend. <laughs> it might just be me. I don't hold it against any of the writers, like you said. But the, the pretend bullshit just kind of irks me for some reason. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wrote a piece for New York Magazine after all this happened of like what, as the founder of Deadspin, what happens to Deadspin now? And this was actually probably the worst case scenario, right? <laughs> like, I do feel like this is probably the worst case scenario yeah, oh, of what completely. could happen for it. Because, you know, at least at least if it went like Breitbart Sports, yeah, you know? Yeah, completely. And, uh, Go and, like, the other way. That would be a thing that we would – it might even be fun to make fun of those guys. It might, it might it could be a fun sparring thing. It would be sad, but it would be like – like it would be – like it would be awful. But it would be like, you know, understandably <laughs> awful. This is like sad. And it's just sad in a way – that uh, it feels a little bit like, I don't know, it must be what it's like for like maybe people that uh, grew up with Aerosmith to see Aerosmith now or something. Yeah, right, right, they'd be a bad example. Or like but, De Niro so, in like a, like a crappy like comedy or something. Yeah, like the one with Zac Efron. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. And, and but also but not just that but like but also what in that terrible movie De Niro occasionally looking at the camera and being like you're looking at me you're looking at me <laughs> like that like that somehow makes it it's just right it's the hard part of it right he's, yeah he still does the old hits <laughs> yeah it's and it's hard you're, you've got it exactly right the, the, there is kind of this weird newspapery like just so you know we're doing this we're dangerous but we're gonna do it the right way we're gonna hit all the notes yeah we're gonna follow all the rules but we're still gonna be tough right yeah it's just it's very it is kind of exhausting also the fact that like there are there's literally no women there and to me the, one, oh, of the great funny. Things, yeah. one of the great things about that's been particularly this last incarnation it was run by women the best writers they were all women like that it was such a like it was that was to me one of the things that made the site so fresh and frankly made it so much different and better than when i ran it and it, and and so much more interesting and the fact that they didn't even occur to them to be like you know we should have like even if we'll just be the assholes that have one token woman like do something yeah, the fact that they, they don't even, like consider that perspective at all uh is i think pretty telling and whatever like listen i don't 
I, 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 I think the staff has done a very good job of uh, just ignoring them entirely. And uh, I think that's good. I've only commented about it publicly once, and that was because the day I was literally flying back from Florida on the Friday after quarantine Wednesday. <laughs> and I was flying back. And of course, that's the day yeah. they launched. So I'm sitting in like oh, the airport with my fa- like terrified that my family is we're in West Palm Beach trying to fly back to Georgia. Because we've been spring break that week, and so I'm trying to get back, uh, and and I'm sitting in the airport, and I, I feel like the world's falling apart, and I'm terrified about my parents and my kids and my wife, and I'm and I just <laughs> I get on this fucking plane, and then I'm like, wait, they launched now? They launched now? So I like put like a tweet out being like, okay, I'm sorry, I legitimately needed the laugh that yeah. cosplay dead's been launched today, uh, launched today of all days. But like, I don't want that to like, listen, I don't need to wish them ill. It's, they are all the ill they could possibly like. There's all the there are enough people wishing them ill. Uh, they does it doesn't need anything from me. I think it's obviously a disaster and it's obviously no one's reading it. But I I you know I'm there. I don't I see no need to pile on and I definitely don't see any need to pile on on individual writers. Like again, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the people that owned that site, uh, people that own that site, they're let's not take our eyes off the prize here. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're the, the bad guys. Yeah, the the the, the, the I, I think it's t- I wouldn't say they necessarily brought in a uh, group of heavy hitters uh, over there, but <laughs> right, uh, right. but I I also wouldn't say that it is uh, uh, fair for people to look at them and say how monstrous they're. Maybe maybe leadership. Maybe you could say that about like the EIC, for example. But uh, but to go after the writers to me seems. Uh, yeah, uh, kick it, kick it, a dead cow. Yeah, and I'll admit, when it launched, there was a part of me. I, I went to the in- individual Twitter accounts and just to have that like vicarious thrill of seeing other people call them scabs and stuff like that. And then I had the experience you had, where I felt almost a little ashamed because they were like putting up these weak defenses, and they were kind of like, "Well, here's why I'm doing it. I know it's not popular, and I'm a big fan of the old Deadspin and all this other stuff." And yeah, it's, again, worst case scenario, like you were talking about, like you can't even have fun hating on them. It really just felt sorry for them. Like they know what they're doing. They're not happy about it. And my take even then, and especially now, is that this site is only going to be around as long as the people in charge want to defiantly keep it around out of spite to prove, you know, like to keep from like falling in shame and and to prove something to old Deadspin. Uh, the minute they don't want to do that anymore, I bet it'll collapse on itself. Um, it's a spite store. It is. It's, it's, a, spite it's a spite store. store. It never <laughs> occurred to me, but I think that's kind of right. It is a spite store now. Uh, and so uh, all told, uh, I, again, I have to say I have not looked at it at uh, – I, I think the first couple, first week or so, uh, I kind of checked it out just to see because you know, also when I wrote the New York Magazine piece, I kind of sketched out things that might be interesting, like like uh, hopeful. Like, listen, you know, the, the fact is when I had a piece in the Washington Post, the first line in the bio that they put in there, Will Leach, comma, the founder of Deadspin. Like, I certainly am not like eager to see the Deadspin name just fade away to irrelevance and nobody care about it again. There's value in it. It's something I obviously care about right, and is right. a big part of my life and, and, and everything else. So I don't want to see it like just die. I certainly don't want to see it. This. So I wrote kind of in New York Magazine, what would be a way, what would be at least something interesting they could do that wouldn't be evil and terrible like Breitbart Sports? And I actually kind of like the idea that like, you know what, give it give it over to some like hungry nihilist college students and pay them like <laughs> nothing, but let them just go nuts, right? Just and do like, whatever they want, yeah. 
yeah, do whatever they want and let them have that kind of nihilist spirit that Deadspin, I think, had at its best. Where, like, to me, the advantage of Deadspin when I was doing it and when AJ was doing it and Craig's doing it and definitely when Megan and company were doing it uh, is the idea that, like, you know what? I'm not fucking looking for a job at ESPN. Yeah, I'm not that's auditioning. Right. That's right. I'm not like trying to do like yep. this is I'm doing this here. And I think one of the things if anything has killed what this Deadspin is now is that it, the writers are clearly there out of desperation. Mm-hmm. And the minute that they get a chance to leave, they're only there because there's no other jobs left, which is not their fault. Like that's the, that's the industry thing. They're only there because there's really nowhere else to go. Or uh, like you, you have to be the bottom of the barrel to accept that job. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just, it's a tough, you want to hang on, you want to stay in the game and no one's hiring and here they're offering you a salary. I get it. I understand, but uh, I wouldn't do it, obviously, and I don't think they should have, but I understand. That's right. But but the idea that um, the whole point of Deadspin is that you're not auditioning for other jobs <laughs> and you're not like trying to go get it around the horn job. Like you may end up plenty of people have gone on from Deadspin to bigger and better things. I left Deadspin to go to a New York magazine like I get it. Yep. But like I did. The whole point of Deadspin is to write for Deadspin, you have to write things that could only be on Deadspin and you only would want to be like, that's where you want to be. And that I think to me, that made the, 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 uh, that effect they all quit that much more impressive because they clearly had their dream jobs. And, uh, but then they realized their dream jobs could not exist under that management. And then we saw what we saw. So I am empathetic to the writers, uh, if not necessarily uh, forgiving, I would say. Yeah, no, and, and it was the quitting thing. I mean, I, I have talked to a million people in journalism at various fields, and I've experienced some of this myself, where things happen and things change in ways that you don't like, but you accept them piecemeal. You're like the, you're like the frog in the boiling pot, right? You, you kind of accept and accept and accept. Uh, just because you have a job and like, you have considerations and things. So for them, all to quit in mass like that was really something else. And I, I do think it was courageous. I'm glad they did it. It sucks that a lot of them don't have jobs, and I hope they all do eventually. But um, it was like, yeah, it was a moment of integrity that I necessarily could not live up to based on my own experience, but I'm glad they did it. Um, one thing, Will, I was talking to Tim Layden last week, and he was saying how if he, you know, if he were to get a New York Times obituary when he died, the very first thing they would say was Tim Layden wrote for Sports Illustrated for 25 years and how, you know, 10 years ago, if somebody had had that, it's a very different thing from what it would be today based on the way SI has changed. And, uh, and, you know, maybe in 10 years from now, depending on if it keeps going, either it could be something way worse than it is now or it could be completely forgotten. And so that does what you said before is interesting of founder of Deadspin.com for people of my generation and, you know, 10 years younger and 10 years older. That's really meaningful and a really big deal. Um, but, yeah, do you think in your head, my gosh, how is this going to change? How is the meaning of that going to change as time goes on? I mean, that's one of the most infuriating things about it, right? <laughs> Forget my personal thing, yeah. but, the, but the idea that like, like Deadspin did not exist before 2005, and it, it's a word that means something. Even if you hate it, like even if you hated Deadspin, you understand, like it was a thing and it was Absolutely, a community yeah. and it was a it was something to rail against or something to get behind or something that people like, there goes Deadspin again, or like, hey, go get a Deadspin, or all of those things. That's, they just destroyed it for nothing out of spite. And to <laughs> me, that's, that's the infuriating is that they, they, never valued what it was even to hate it <laughs> even to like like they were just like oh sports side let's go after the young demographic male demographic right and like they right. were just ditch it you know and 
as someone that listen, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm really bad at social media is a lot of the fights that people have about journalism and about news breaking and about decorum and about all of these things, you know, these are all things that I was going through in 2005. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah. the, the, just remembering, like, like how do you deal with commenters? How do you deal with this stuff? And what's the right thing to do? And so on. And it feels like we're still all having those same kind of fights. And well, I just kind of like didn't want to do it anymore. And so, and but and one of the things that was, I remember back then is I would be running the site for three years. And so we'd get some new ad person. I never even met the ad people when I was there. And mm -hmm. they got like a new ad person right before I left the camp. And he's like, all right, well, what are we going to do? And I was like, I'm sorry. I don't even want to know who you are. <laughs> You're supposed to be in the room with me. Like, I'm yeah. going to make something. And it's your job to sell it. That's right. If you cannot sell it, you can fire me and who will make something that you think you can sell. But you and I aren't even supposed to know each other. <laughs> and in the last 15 years, uh, I, I fought that fight out of like obvious. Like I was like, well, this is obviously a fight I'm going to win. We all know how this works. I'm not supposed to be hanging with advertising people. And slowly over the last 10 plus years, those people not just we, we not only started letting those people in the room. Now they're running the room. Yeah. And yeah. if you want to know why the web sucks now, that's why mm. that's why it sucks. And so, like, those people are those people are not supposed to be around. They're supposed to have nothing to do with this. And listen, Gawker was as guilty of this as anyone. I was never there when they had the big traffic board. But like, you know, one of my famous things about Deadspin is I never looked at traffic. It was just the rule. Right. So right, I, right. I told uh, my, my editor at the time, the guy that hired me, I guess, uh, that if I if I don't get enough hits, just fire me. Give me a warning and then fire me. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so I, I don't want to be like the mouse that does exactly what he's supposed to do. So you'll give him a pellet. And right. it, it feels like that's just literally the way all of this works now. Perhaps it shouldn't be the least surprising that the industry is falling apart and nobody trusts it because we've let these people in that don't understand what news gathering is, don't understand what actual like audience engagement and interaction with these people are. They just look like mm, me want young male demographic. Me see numbers go up. They, yeah. and, and this is what happens when you let those people. Yeah, and it's got no soul, and that, that is one of the big tragedies, is that Deadspin was the place where you would write things that couldn't go anywhere else, and now that it's gone, it can't go anywhere else. Um, that would probably be a really good place to end, but with my usual uh, instinct for <laughs> wrapping it up, I do want to ask you one more question, Will. Um, you wrote a really nice piece on the NFL for New York Magazine uh, this past week where you talked about there is this kind of, uh, to twist uh, uh, an idiom, there's a kind of virtual sig signaling that the NFL is doing right now where they are... Public facing, they are basically saying everything's going off as planned. Now they may have behind the scenes, uh, you know, alternate plans and Plan Bs and everything like that. Um, but we're seeing that in other sports too. Like golf is saying they're going to start in June, which feels really optimistic to me. But they have to say this uh, for certain reasons. You know, they want the income to come and they want their sponsors to think they're going. But one thing you brought up is that with the NFL, it is far more urgent and a far bigger deal because the scope of the NFL's popularity is such that. It, it's not just the NFL losing money if they collapse or if they can't play. It's everything else. It's the entire ecosystem that could go with it. Uh, am I summarizing that right? Is that kind of the dynamic that we're looking at here? I, I think the NFL's reach is part of it. It's really their television money, right? Like basically what we have is we have a cable and network system that is falling apart in every other context and that, you know, 
it's it's kind of amusing that they're bringing back the Sunday night movie on CBS because I remember when I was a kid, whatever the <laughs> yeah. Sunday night movie was, everyone sat down and watched it together. We all knew what it was. And of course, that stopped once, you know, I realized, oh, I can watch Better Call Saul whenever the hell I want to, right, as opposed right. to like this appointment television. There is no appointment television anymore. And therefore, of course, ad rates can't charge as much for ad rates because every ratings across the board are down because no one feels like they have to watch television at a certain time except for sports sports has become like a huge like that's why that's where the highest rating rated television shows are almost all sporting events and and award shows because they're actual live appointment things and because of that sports specifically the nfl because it's so perfectly not only structured for television but like amazing thing the nfl's done the fact that they've made games almost exactly three hours to me, that is like, that is like, that tells you everything you need to know about the NFL. They are a television entity. Mm-hmm. They know what they're doing. Direct TV exists because of them. No one wants direct TV. Direct TV is terrible, but we have to have <laughs> it because the NFL kind of keeps it alive. And the NFL, because of that is so valuable and has so much money, but it's all been based on one. Uh, so it's keeping this old business model afloat but it's all been based on one basic assumption which is well obviously there will always still be games there will always be games to show and if you take that away that that affects everything that affects the sports media business which is already struggling the idea i've always joked that football in many ways in the way that college football subsidizes uh, a lot of other sports at, uh, at universities, I think the NFL subsidizes a lot of sports business and uh, it's a lot of sports media business. And so that is the kind of the scary thing. That's why I think of all the sports, the NFL uh, is the one that I think, even if you're a baseball fan who hates the NFL, you need to root for the NFL to figure this out and to figure out something. And I wrote another piece for New York Magazine this week about what will make all the sports come back. It's kind of fascinating because there has been some movement in the last week about teams being more, teams being more optimistic, trying to figure things out. But I, so I kind of tried to research why that was. And the real reason seems to be because of governors like mine and uh, and, right, and, Georgia yeah, yeah. and the governor in Colorado and governor in Florida who are basically saying – basically the leagues are saying, wait, OK, if crunch is open, we can figure <laughs> out a way to do something here. Of course, um, yeah. But – I mean, if you're not a sports fan, I think most of the world, I think certainly scientific experts are looking at Camp and DeSantis and Polis and Colorado and being like, I don't know if this is a good idea. And so it was discouraging to me to realize that the reason people are getting more optimistic about sports is actually because some more governors are opening up their states in the face of a lot of recommendations and evidence. So that didn't make me feel better, (laughs) to be honest, (laughs) Uh, because I was like, oh, wait. So the reason I'm feeling optimistic about sports coming back is Governor Kemp? Yeah. (laughs) That was was a little worrisome to me as someone that lives in Georgia and knows that guy. It's a little bit like Chernobyl, where everybody's saying one thing and then all the narratives come from the one thing that one guy is saying. But in fact, the meltdown is actually happening, whether they like it or not. Yes. uh, uh, Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Lots of many, 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 many Chernobyl uh, parallels uh, certainly showing up these days. And uh, I think that's it. But, you know, they've got every incentive to figure this out. You listen, you know, I like a lot of sports fans. I'm really torn, you know, because on one hand, it really does seem to me um, there to get sports going as soon as everybody wants them to get back, back going requires a lot of risks and also risks for maybe people who 
are not in a position to be able to handle these risks. I don't mean the players. I mean the staff. I mean the yeah, hotel yeah. workers. All like to me, uh, you know, it feels like those people are are the ones in that the players. But they're the ones endangered by this. Uh, and the and but the fact is, so I logically speaking and morally speaking, it seems maybe weird that they're kind of pushing it. On the other hand, I would like sports to come back, and <laughs> more to the point. Um, it does feel like they're going to push this. It feels like they're going to push it. I, I don't, I'm not saying any league specifically, but it certainly has a vibe now with this much television money that they're going, they're going to fall on the acceptable risk aspect of this rather than cautiousness. And um, we'll see. But some leagues are different than others in this regard. And it's wary. Like I'm very like here's going to be here's something I'm I'm going to predict. Um, okay. This is my this is my crazy prediction. Some of these sports are going to come back, and all of us sports fans that are desperate for sports to come back, there's going to be a big discussion of whether or not it's moral for us to watch these games. Uh, oh, I think that's going to I have not thought of that, but you're 100 percent right. That is definitely going to happen. I think that's what's going to happen. I think there's going to be a league that pushes it too much. I don't know what league it'll be, but there, there will be a league that becomes tries to come back too quickly, and there's going to be a and they're going to move it from Florida to Texas to wherever states that are reopening uh, in potentially dangerous ways. And we're going to have to ask ourselves: Is it worth it? To are you a jerk? for supporting this uh it's the college sports argument we've really been happening having for the last 10 years except now it's about death uh so <laughs> yeah. I, I can totally see that happening in the next few months all right will leach it was a pleasure as always sir can i book you for 2025 yeah i'm sure we'll all be dead by then but yes if we're still around <laughs> i'd be happy to. all right thanks will stay safe of course you too man segment break all right, thanks again to Will Leach, and thanks to you for listening. This was episode number four, and you can check out Apocalypse Sports Radio on iTunes, on Spotify. I'm going to do my best to get it up everywhere, Google Podcasts, wherever they have podcasts. I want to make it so that you literally can't escape this. Um, and look, go to apocalypsesports.net, check it out. There are some free posts there. If you like what you read, subscribe. You get all the posts, all the podcasts for only $3 a month, patreon.com slash apocalypsesports. All right, great. Have a wonderful day, and I will see you next week, my friends. Goodbye.